This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning, afternoon. It's afternoon for me, so I almost said afternoon. I usually say good morning. Hello, everyone. Can you dig it? I can. Welcome to a slightly late, actually a wheat lake, wheat, a week late by this time episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast with your host, Sam LaCrosse. Okay, so I want to explain my absence last week because I feel like I am the hardest thing, I think, to teach with anything, whether that's something like this, or whether it's your work, or whether it's your relationships with people, wh whatever it is. It's consistency. You need to be consistent at something in order to have, I think, something of quality of anything. And one thing that I have prided myself on in terms of my podcast and everything else is um, is the consistency of it. I do it every week. I've, I've, you know, I've kept stringent with the number of volumes. When I haven't been able to do one, I've done two the next week. So earlier in the uh, year, for example, when I caught corona and I Force myself almost to do the podcast, and then I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna sound like shit, and I'm just not gonna. I'm, I'm just not gonna. I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, puke or you know, start coughing up blood during the whole thing." But um, so I didn't do it then, and I didn't do it that last week. And here's why: so my mother, she is a very spontaneous person, and my birthday was last weekend, so she's like, "Okay, your brother's gonna fly out, so he's gonna send him out there." And uh, we we had a good time. You know, we went to a University of Texas football game. We went out for steak. We did all the other stuff, but. Um, you know, and honestly, like it all kind of came to a head. I was so busy last week on my birthday. I had most of it done, but I couldn't get it finished in time where I felt like it would be of quality and of everything else. So I was like, you know what? It's my birthday on Sunday. I'm going to watch the Browns, even though the Browns sucked. I'm going to, you know, eat steak. I'm going to have a good time. This is how it's going to be. And I did those things. So I was like, you know what? I can live and I will do, I, I have, it's not like I didn't do anything. It's not like I took the whole week off. I didn't. I just didn't have the last bit. I had most of it done, didn't record the podcast, didn't really edit or cite it yet. And that took, you know, an, like two hours, I think it was what it ended up, ended up out being. So um, I had most of it finished, but then again, I just didn't, you know, it was my birthday. It was a lot of things coming in. My brother was in town, all the other stuff. So I was like, you know what? I can allow myself a day where I don't have to, you know, put this on because I'm going to make up for it next week. And this is not saying like, you know, cut corners and do all this other stuff. And that's not what I'm saying at all. But for people that are consistent with working out, eating healthy, if you don't take a break on occasion and really, really, you know, be so, you know, discipline, all discipline turns to rigidity after a while. I've learned that lesson the hard way numerous times. And I still haven't fully learned it. So that explains my lateness. 
And I think that also kind of pertains to the topic that I was talking about last week and going to be talking about this week. And then, you know, who knows what I'm going to do my additional podcast on. But I, this is one that I've been thinking about for a very, very long time. And I wanted to kind of, you know, I wanted to really see, put it in words, see kind of what it really turned out to be, record it, see how it sounded, everything else. But I really, really have been feeling very strongly about this, um, this, I would say, I don't even know what it is, like issue. I don't even know if it's an issue, but like, you know, something inside of it where it's like, okay, this is what I'm feeling about this. And I think a lot of other people are feeling this way about this too. And I have no shame in being politically incorrect. So I think this is going to be, you know, how it's going to be. So I want to flush it out or flush it out, see how it goes. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. So let's get into it. Okay. So if you didn't notice it, you missed America's newest holiday two Sundays ago. Actually, it really wasn't just any holiday. It was a religious holiday, one that everyone can miraculously celebrate regardless of your actual religion. Everyone from our celebrity class to your co-workers took their various spaces to spread the joyous news. Instagram posts were published. Snapchat stories were tagged. Tweets were sent. YouTube compilations were clipped together. People were told to do things. In fact, all of us were told to do things. Whether we did them or not wasn't important. What really was important was that you just told people. You just had to let everyone know that you were on their side, the side of cosmic justice. World Mental Health Day takes place on October 10th of every year. It began in 1992 in the United States and has absolutely gotten more and more prominent every year doing the massive attention the cause now gets. With statements such as, quote, advocating for those in the fight and, quote, getting rid of the stigma, there are many people that rally behind them in order to give themselves something to fight for. For most folks, they don't have a fight, but everyone has mental health, so this is a low-hanging fruit that everyone seems to pick. And you don't just see these things on social media. You drown in them. You choke on them. You're forced to take them in whether you like them or not, because if you don't, you're like a, a bad person or something. You, quote, don't care. You're not, quote, standing up for people. It's funny that in our culture, the loudest ones are celebrated, even though they're proven oftentimes to be the most insecure and lonely. They should listen to more Tyler, the Creator. It would probably help them. This all seems, like most trends on social media, to be tremendously disingenuous and performative. It's not meant with any real sympathy. It's not meant to help people. It's only meant to promote a subtle but insidious form of narcissism, one that casually empowers the narcissist and serves to completely disempower those who are unfortunate enough to be actually afflicted with a certain condition. It's a nasty thing, this. Not a lot of people see through it, and that's a shame. But out of the social media darkness, a light has emerged. One person prominently had the balls to say what no one else would. One person was able to successfully craft an argument against the insanity. One person, both equally hilarious and intelligent, who was able to cut through all the bullshit in order to really get to the meat of the subject and flip an argument on its head when it desperately needed to be flipped. Tim Dillon. Tim Dillon is a stand-up comedian hailing from Long Island, New York, who quickly rose to prominence in the last five years from several well-timed appearances on podcasts, including Seven Times from Joe Rogan, and the marketing of his own, which has surged in popularity. He's frequently cited by other comics as one of the funniest living men on the planet, the aforementioned Rogan and Andrew Schultz being two of his most valid endorsers. But a lot of people don't care for Tim Dillon, because Tim Dillon says what he truly thinks. Tim Dillon is naturally polarizing because he is one of the few people that is truly unfiltered, one of the few that truly speaks his mind. 
He's been on everywhere in the spectrum, from doing coke and selling subprime mortgages to chain-smoking cigarettes while doing stand-up comedy on a cruise ship to the venues of the greatest comedic halls in the country. He really doesn't care what most people think about him because basically everyone has thought nothing of him at some point. He doesn't care if he soars or if he burns. As long as he is him, he's okay with that. And as long as he's okay with that, he's invincible. Tim Dillon chose to weigh in on the subject of mental health during one of the hottest talking points of the subject in the past year. In the month of May, sports superstars Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka withdrew from the Tokyo Olympics and the Wimbledon Classic, respectively, because of, quote, mental health concerns. Simone Biles was later, later diagnosed with a minor medical condition related to gymnastics called the twisties, which throws off your vertigo due to rapid body movement. This makes sense for the greatest gymnast to ever live to experience this sensation. Nonetheless, the withdrawal of both women from two of the biggest sporting events in the world was universally praised by almost every institution as a, quote, watershed moment for the mental health conversation in America. They were showered with blossoming criticism for their, quote, bravery, despite them not stepping up to the plate to complete the task that they were there to do. Any criticism of the two women, no matter what it was for, was automatically exiled and sent into the social media ether. You weren't allowed to touch either of them. This struck me as curious. The Olympics and the Wimbledon Classic are the unequivocal peaks of athletic performance in those various sports. Even if you go there and don't win, you're still unanimously recognized as one of the best in the world at what you do. It's a remarkable accomplishment. So why not at least try? See what happens. You weren't allowed to question that either, unfortunately. I found it very unfair that these athletes were being held to different standards for doing a job that other people were for their own. I have several colleagues that work in the entry-level public accounting and investment banking spaces and tech sales, three of the toughest fields to make it in through business. What would happen to them if they decided to completely stop auditing a client, making a pitch deck, or getting leads for their sales reps if they cited, quote, mental health concerns? The answer? They'd get fired. I have a friend who just took the MCAT. What if he didn't take it and appealed to the university because of, quote, mental health concerns? The answer, he would not get into that university. So, if the rest of the world works the same way, why do they get judged differently? Tim Dillon was wondering the same thing. However, he chose to open this segment of his podcast with another athlete, Raven Saunders. Raven Saunders is an Olympic shot putter for the United States that hails from Charleston, South Carolina. She's an incredibly gifted athlete, placing fifth in the world at her designated event in 2016. However, she went through a period after she got off that high of depression and suicidal thoughts. She almost drove off a bridge because of it, according to her profile on a, CN or a, or a, a profile about her in CNN. It was incredibly sad. At the 2021 Games, she was one of the poster boys for, quote, destigmatizing mental health. But Tim Dillon had a question, the inverse question to be exact. Quote, why don't we destigmatize people who don't want to kill themselves? End quote. Tim Dillon has been very open about his life. One of the things he's been most vulnerable about is his mother. Dillon's mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was young and had to be institutionalized because of it. She can't function in normal society. Dylan visits her in the hospital when, she, when he can and talks to her fellow patient friends, who also have severe afflictions such as schizophrenia. He's seen mental health problems before. 
So, naturally, he finds it interesting that now seemingly everyone has, quote, mental health problems. But that clearly is not true. Dylan's scenario proves it. If everyone had actual, quote, mental health issues, we probably wouldn't have a country by this point. All the crazies would have burned it down or tried to finger themselves with parts of it or something. In fact, it seems now, to his prior point, that if you don't come out as having mental health, pro as having mental health problems, you're somehow in the minority. Dylan continued. He pointed out that most people who are doing this, most prominently the people that are just on social media jerking themselves off to it all the time, really don't even know what, quote, mental health issues mean. Most people on social media don't diagnose themselves as bipolar or with multiple personality disorder or having schizophrenia. Instead of a specific diagnosis, it's usually a blanket. Anxiety and depression. It's never a specific thing with most people anymore. They can never point to anything empirical. Instead, it's just blanketed and vague self-diagnosis, which, of course, leads to blanketed and vague ways in how to solve them, with most to all of them eventually proving to be fruitless. But it doesn't just stop there. As referenced above with America's newest holiday and the trends exemplified by Biles and Osaka, people aren't just self-diagnosing. They're fetishizing it. They're stroking off their own victimhood and coming all over their social media feeds to make sure that everyone knows about every little detail. It's not only becoming their crutch, it's becoming, and has become, their identity. As hopefully shown by my work on this blog and in this podcast, putting a cause or a group that is untethered from individual competence and striving is just about as bad of an idea as you can get next to strapping a belt of lit M80s to your hand and hoping you won't blow your fingers off. It's going to happen in both scenarios. It will end up consuming you and destroying you if you let it, which... Most do. See the recent mob activity that's place, taken place in America for recent years, example, for examples out the ass. But people, specifically young people, have begun to use mental health as an excuse. It's now becoming a, a cop-out for almost every possible scenario ranging from, from class attendance to just treating people like shit in general. These people, in all likelihood, do not have an actual mental health issue to use as a legitimate excuse. They only pair at a talking point in order to meet some end goal of theirs they don't feel confident in hitting without it. Excuse me. Therapy dogs on campus are getting used by everyone now. All you have to do is simply apply for one with a, quote, mental health problem, and you usually get one. My company just announced a policy of, quote, recharge days in order to take a break for, quote, mental health problems. Some of these might be warranted on some occasions, but to grant them for all scenarios for all people... That seems reckless at best. It is most likely a large emotional overcompensation pushed by mob participants in order to advance some end goal, as mentioned before. But there's something happening alongside this that I find more concerning. Not only is this push for, quote, mental health awareness appearing to our, appealing to our victimhood, it's also removing our reason for strength. Strong people, it seems, don't get elevated in the media anymore. This was astutely pointed out by Dylan, who said that the people who don't wax emotional about their, quote, mental health problems are no longer celebrated by anyone. There are no more strong, silent types, to use the Sony, Tony Soprano phrase. There are only weak, loud types. Our culture elevating and fetishizing weakness is not a good thing. When adopted into the mainstream, this leads to massive problems. If a culture begins to favor weakness or perceived weakness over strength, this will bleed into other areas where strength and the competence that comes with it is not required. If this is allowed to happen, our institutions that make up our country, think of them what you will, 
will begin to decay and rot due to the people running them not knowing what the fuck they're doing. In some cases, this has already happened. Celebrating weakness is not good. It's not okay to be weak. However, there is a dichotomy here, like all things. Mental health issues are real. They're definitely more common than what we gave them credit for back in 1992, and especially before social media. My sister has autism, a very debilitating mental health disorder. She has to take six different types of medication every day in order to function somewhat normally in society. And even then, she'll never truly assimilate, like most of her friends unfortunately won't because of their conditions. I genuinely feel sympathy for these people, as we all should. But we don't suddenly all have mental health issues either. Mental health is far from an all-or-nothing issue. If that were the case, there would be no mental health issues in the first place. Mental health is a very personal thing that takes place at the individual level. Trying to solve an individualized problem by outsourcing it to the collective is foolish at best and dangerous at the worst. This area of problem solving is weakening us as a nation by weakening us individually. A nation full of weak people leads to weak actions and weak decisions, which lead to very, very bad things. And we should make an attempt to avoid this. So to explore this landmine-loaded topic, we need to look at key th three key areas. First, we need to dissect why the current cultural and per personal conversation around mental health is wrong. Second, we will discuss why this wrong perception of mental health is getting elevated within that culture. And finally, we will take a look at how to solve a majority of our, quote, mental health problems, largely by doing one thing we avoid doing. And you can choose to enact this advice in a Meghan McCain-style voice, if you wish. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please look it up. It's very, very entertaining. Joey Badass doesn't get enough credit. I first started really getting into music around my freshman year of college, which was at the end of 2016 and beginning of 2017. I would travel from my satellite camp campus apartment every weekend to stay with my old best friend in his dorm on the main campus. My friend had two roommates, one of which was a huge music head who got us into many different colors in the musical kaleidoscope, some of which I still listen to today. And during that time period, Joey Badass released All-American Badass, a concept and protest album about police brutality. Joey had been in the rap scene since he was 16 and been heralded as a prodigy because of his ability and intelligence. He had turned down an offer from Jay-Z to get signed to his label because he wanted to be the next Jay-Z. He did and still does everything independent and in-house. It was inspiring to hear somebody like that, an All-American Badass confirmed my suspicions of that awesomeness. Joey Badass was one of the first people that ever taught me that music is more than something you just listen to. Music, should it indeed be good music, is meant to make you understand things. It's meant to help you get through your day. It's meant to make you think. It's meant to make you feel. And with the politically charged nature of his prior album, a lot of people could relate to it. Joey had immediately become someone with something to say to a lot of people based on that one project alone. What he followed up with, however, was much more divisive. Shortly after the release of All-American Badass, Joey Badass released a track called Love is Only a Feeling as a single. The song is relatively short and talks about Joey's mad infatuation with a woman he's begun seeing. It's a typical song about love. There's literally been tens of millions of them made. Other than having a good beat and being pretty catchy, it really no had no big impact on anything. 
until TikTok. When TikTok started getting big, someone found the song and started uploading videos to it. The company's algorithm being just about the closest possible thing to wildfire as possible, it began to spread like mad. Soon, Love is Only a Feeling, which was far from Joey's best or most reputable song, was now his most popular in an instant. It still ranks as his number one song search when you look him up on Spotify. The song is rather divisive among people who have seen it pop up on their feeds, I would imagine. It's not because it's a bad song or good song or that they like rap or don't like rap. I personally think it's a decent song and love rap music, but people can have a lot of opinions on a lot of things. But there was something I noticed, particularly in one exchange with a friend. You can't have an opinion on mental health. In that exchange with that friend, I had posted the song title to my Snapchat story after feeling sad. Another hinge girl had crushed me, probably. But this friend didn't like what I had to say. She slid up on my story and slammed me for it. What do you mean love is, quote, only a feeling? You're wrong. Love is love, no matter what you feel or say about it. I can understand why she was upset. I can understand why a lot of people are upset, particularly when we talk about something as loaded as the term love is. For a lot of people, it's all they ever hope to accomplish and achieve in life. It's what they hope for, what they strive for. To question something so unanimously perceived as good is automatically a don't-go-there zone. The mob won't have it. But why? What exactly about Joey Badass's song title is wrong? The answer is that nothing is wrong with it. Love is, indeed, only a feeling. But love is such a loaded word, as we previously discussed, that anything dissuading it from automatically recognizing it as a good thing is immediately crucified as heresy. This is, also, the reason why our current conversation about mental health is so fucked up. Lots of people feel things, but very few people in this demographic are being truthful about this fact about their feelings. That they're just feelings. People like Eric Weinstein and Tristan Harris have talked about issues such as this before in, two, in relatively simple terms. Hardware and software. The argument is two-headed, one side coming from either man. Weinstein has stated before that while hardware is fixed, software is not. And as someone who sells software, I can tell you that this is correct, and I don't know a fucking thing about most of the software I sell. You can code software to make it to your liking. You can change it. Hardware, on the contrary, is as it is. It's usually just a massive box upon which software runs over. It's meant to handle software and other things that go on top of it. Harris's argument is intertwined with Weinstein's, but is still somewhat different. Harris, who specializes in the welfare of our modern minds and interface with technology such as social media, sees a problem with our current relationship with technology. Even though we understand very little about our brains and how they operate, one of the things that we do know is that they haven't really evolved that much from when we were monkeys. The only reason we become more advanced than the monkeys is because we've simply used our brains better as a tool. But there's a problem with our brains. Remember, our brains are hardware. They don't generally evolve that much. But software does, and it does so exponentially, particularly in the area we're living in. When hardware can't handle the software that it runs under, bad things happen. They usually break, short-circuit, or burst into flames. Harris's argument is that, due to the rapid pace of technological innovation, our brains are short-circuiting because of the massive throughput we're trying to ram through them. It's simply an operational issue and one that we're not handling well at all. So why does this matter? The reason it matters 
is because the issue of our mental health is inherently a hardware versus software issue. We're having trouble as a society deciding which is which and what we should do about them. This is the part of the conversation where people who are reading, if there are indeed any reading or, or listening in this case at all, need to ask themselves some tough questions. Most people with, quote, mental health problems are those who cannot properly do this. It is essential to our sanity that we are able to do so. The reality is, lots of people feel things. In fact, we all do. But the question you need to ask yourself after you feel something is, is what I'm feeling actually real? Is what you're feeling actually real? That is the question. That is the essential question, as a matter of fact. Just because you feel something does not mean that that something is tangibly true. This is the main issue that I and many others have with a lot of the social justice warrior types out there. It's perfectly okay to feel things. Everything I write about comes from a feeling. But remember our friend Joey Badass. Love is only a feeling. At least sometimes. There are a lot of people that legitimately are in love. But not all people who, quote, feel love are experiencing it. Again, we feel a lot of things. It's okay to initially feel that Jacob Blake was shot by police officers in front of his children. But it's not okay to sustain that anger and direct it towards the police officers who were afraid Blake was going to attack them after he asked them repeatedly to drop his weapon, tase him, and otherwise impede him from doing potential harm after they were called on the scene. It's okay to initially feel angry about Donald Trump losing the election when you feel that there was voter fraud and irregularity. But it's entirely irrational to continue on die on the, quote, stop the steel hill when the man clearly lost. Neither of these scenarios are justified simply by their feelings. They are justified instead by facts, and facts don't necessarily care about your feelings, to quote Ben Shapiro. But when you blatantly oppose the facts when you know you're wrong, as we do with our, quote, mental health issues, we go into something worse. Denial. This is the crux of the argument that needs to be hammered home. The reason that the current conversation around mental health is wrong is that it is based entirely on how one feels versus the reality of one's situation. Living in fantasy is incredibly dangerous, particularly when paired with something as serious as the quality of our mental well-being. Knowing the difference between what you're feeling versus what actually happened is the most essential part of living a productive life. If you don't know, or in much worse cases, don't care whether you're getting the right diagnosis of what you're going through, you're going to have a hard time existing in a world that is quite literally defined on those terms of agreement. This is the reason why self-diagnosis is dangerous. The reason why self-diagnosis, particularly over social media, is dangerous is that it is sensationalized. Everything on social media is. It's a living caricature of the world that is blown up for all to see. You don't see lowlights on social media unless they're fetishized lowlights. You're either chilling with bikini-clad women on Instagram or one favorite away from hanging yourself by your sister's panties. There is no in-between, no nuance. It's all or nothing, one way or the other. There is no evidence behind self-diagnosis until you're a real expert in the field of mental health, or in any field for that matter. And, if you are, why in the fuck are you not correcting people? So they can, quote, feel better? That's nice. Why do you just hand them a bottle of prescription pills and a scale? You'll make the job go faster. If you get your, quote, mental health advice from an Instagram influencer who's only special up as in makeup tutorials or bicep curls of bad form, you need a new expert. Instead, what people do is simply say how they feel and automatically equate it with the absolute non-fact of how it is. 
This is anti-scientific to put it mildly. You have a hypothesis, but nothing else. There is no experimentation, no stress, no testing, nothing. You just take the scientific method and take a massive post-Mexican food shit all over it. This is not a good way to go about examining anything that can be this level of severity. One of the things that I like so much about the fields of both operations management and psychology is that, if done right, they remove all subjectivity from the equation. A good operations manager does not care about how a process feels when attempting to make it better. He simply makes it better. A good psychologist does not care about how a patient feels when, asking, when attempting to work through a problem. She simply, asks, she simply attempts to make it better. They are always asking the crucial question of why. They are always attempting to get one level deeper. They want to peel back the onion layer by layer until they come to whatever the center is so they can work from, out from that center to correct the problem at the core. They cut out the tumor at the tumor, not where the tumor spreads to. That process does nothing but delay the horrible inevitable, a potentially cataclysmic failure that could result in everything about that suddenly collapsing into the ether. This is not good. Everything I've ever written on this forum has been based on a feeling. Everything. But there have been a lot, and I mean a lot, of things that I've attempted to explore on this forum that have started from a feeling that have turned out to be just that. A feeling. Whenever I try to look if there's any substance backing it up, there's little to nothing there. I don't rough write fluff on this blog and talk about it on this podcast. That's why everything is so fucking long and convoluted most of the time. I do operations management and psychology the right way. I get to the bottom of shit, or at least try my hardest to. When the only focus is on the end goal and not on the cause, problems are inevitably going to arise. You want to become successful in your current career. That's awesome. But what is the cause of that? So you can buy a car to flex in front of your friends, so you can make a broader impact on society, make a lot of money to show your parents that you're, quote, a success. Most people do not think about these things, and it's sad. They have absolutely no fucking plan whatsoever, so they end up sinking their life into a hole that they may or may not want to inhabit. This is a waste of time at best, and a waste of your life at worst. Eric Thomas, one of the only motivational speakers I've ever found remotely appealing, got famous off this premise. Quote, Pain is temporary. It may last for a minute, or an hour, or a day, or even a year. But eventually, it will subside. End quote. How true this is. Just because you feel bad does not mean that something is wrong with you. In fact, it could be the opposite. It doesn't feel good to go from out of shape to in shape. It's a lot of hard work. You want to give up several times. You want to purge. You want to throw that fucking tuna salad away and have a fucking steak and cheese sandwich instead. But if you care, you won't. You'll stick with the pain of eating that disgusting ass fucking tuna salad so you could potentially have the opportunity to have a bomb-ass fucking steak and cheese sandwich on occasion. It sucks to burn calories at the gym. You don't want to lift heavy weights and rip your hands up. You don't run and cramp up and get blisters on your feet and squeeze pus out in front of your kids on the couch every night. But if you care, you won't. Because deep down, you know it's the right thing. And we all know it's the right thing. The current approach to mental health in America is easy. It's painless. We simply affirm everything that's going on inside of our heads rather than challenge it with greater evidence. What's leading to all the issues that are fucking up our heads are that people are inappropriately merging the two to form a false narrative about the nature of oneself. This conflation is resulting in a catastrophe everywhere we look. 
and it's killing us. It's killing us slowly, but it's killing us. If we're honest with ourselves and those we care for, we would point it out. So the next logical question is, why don't we? If we know something is bad for us, should we rid ourselves of that something? The logical answer to that logical question is an absolute and unequivocal yes. But human beings aren't logical creatures. We're emotional ones. The same problem with our mental health, our overemphasis on emotion, is affecting our decision-making as well. And it's to that point where we should turn to next. On September 23rd, Tom Bilyeu had famous American neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on his Impact Theory podcast. Huberman, a professor at the Stanford School of Medicine, had come to write light in recent years for his work in the field of brain development for human potential. His work was so interesting that it began to spiral into people who were interested in brain expansion, making several appearances with Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman on their respective podcasts to delve deeply into the subject. Huberman was brought out by Bill Yao in order to discover how to, quote, hack your brain to improve yourself. As we discussed numerous times previously on this forum, I hate the hacker methodology. I think it's taken way out of context by many people, most notably people like Bill Yao, who are of the self-improvement type. Hacks don't work, at least in the long-term strategy. They may work from time to time, but they definitely shouldn't be counted on as a major indicator of life satisfaction and meaning. But, fortunately for Bill Yao, He's a pretty good host most of the time. He mostly listens and helps to steer the smart people like Huberman into giving up a few nuggets that could help us. The subject that Huberman focused on throughout the duration of this discussion was on dopamine. Dopamine is widely known as the pleasure chemical in the brain that is released when the brain perceives something positive happening to it, like when you eat a good meal, have good sex, or are in the process of creating the latest erotic novel for mass consumption. Most people have a general perception of what they think dopamine is. The basic formula is such that when you do good things, you generally feel good afterward as a result of doing those, quote, good things. But Huberman had a different answer to that question. Huberman didn't just have the same and different internal consensus about dopamine's role. He went further. He said that the current perception of dopamine in our society is wrong. Most of the time, as noted in our earlier analysis, we as people look at dopamine simply as the end result. It's the effect of something that has caused that effect to happen, and that's why we go out and, quote, seek that dopamine high that we're used to hear so used to hearing about. Huberman's response to this consensus was very interesting. Huberman stated that not only was this a wrong analysis, this was a dangerous analysis. In fact, he concluded that this exact theory of how our brains perceive pleasure is directly correlated to our society's, quote, mental health problems. You see, dopamine in the pursuit of pleasure is great. We all like to feel good. But remember, that is the exact problem that is causing a lot of our society to think that they have a non-existent disease. We need balance and perspective in order to sort through this puzzle. Huberman began to explain to Bilya what he called the dopamine-pleasure-pain balance. Pleasure and pain are a duality. One cannot exist without the other in existence. When more emphasis is put on one versus the other, the effect of either of them begins to decrease in rapid fashion. What our culture is doing by exuding endless amounts of mindless positivity, according to Huberman, 
is effectively removing pain from the pain-pleasure balance. This is causing our pleasure receptors to decrease in their sensitivity, which is, therefore, lowering our pleasure as a whole. With no pain and no pleasure, what used to make us happy and healthy seems rather underwhelming to us at this point. The reason why everyone is unhappy and complaining about, quote, mental health issues is that no one really feels pleasure anymore. The reason that no one feels pleasure anymore is because all the capacity that we've recently had in order to feel pleasure has been absolutely obliterated by our own doing. When we chose to deliberately fuck up our mental balance to form an imbalance, we undermined our own ability to have a good mental health. Dopamine is the key. It is the gateway to all that leads to a good relationship with the mind. When that gets thrown to the wayside, everything is lost. So if our pleasure receptors, the gateway to truly positive mental health, is all fucked up, then how do we start to reel it back in? Huberman had a solution to that too. We've all heard the horribly cliched phrase about, quote, it's not the destination, it's about the journey, right? Well, get ready, you're about to get a whole fucking face full of that shit. In the destination of anything, whether it's holding a newborn baby in your arms or relishing in the fact that you landed your dream job, it's an overwhelming sense of good. Your dopamine receptors get popped in the microwave on high and come out sizzling. You literally set your brain on fire. And if you haven't noticed, you can burn yourself when you eat pizza rolls just came out of the oven or set something on fire without an inhibitor on how to control it. In the journey to that happiness, however, this does not happen. Setbacks happen when you're trying in the process of having a kid or trying to land a job. You could suffer a miscarriage. You could throw up every morning while carrying the child. Your feet are probably going to swell up like a motherfucker. You're probably going to have to test out multiple companies. You'll probably get rejected a bunch of times. You might get made to look stupid by some asshat boss you won't want to work for. These things happen. But something else happens while these things are happening. Even though these things along the way are painful, they are always reinforced by something pleasurable. Why? Because you're still striving towards the end goal. You still have hope. Your pleasure and pain are perfectly balanced, should the goal be right, as all things should be, Thanos' voice. You don't have to try in order to make sure that everything is right. If your values and sacrifices are aligned, they will be. You need not have to fear. Simply, quote, feeling good is the equivalent of dopamine, and people are elevating the simplicity of that end goal and not the pursuit of that end goal. This is not only causing a massive dopamine imbalance, but also cratering our mental sanity for the sake of simply feeling better, which we actually don't in the end. When we blow out our pleasure receptors, we have to increase and increase every time we want something new to take its place. This is why people get addicted to things like drugs and porn. You start with weed and amateurs and end up with crystal meth and double anal sex, not because you inherently want to, but you end up with those things simply because of science. Your brain and the dopamine that, contained within it, well, that was contained in it wears out, so you replace it with something stronger, even if that something stronger could eventually kill you. So we need to ask ourselves, what happens when nothing that we used to feel good about feels good anymore? What happens is what we discussed earlier, a blanketed and generalized feeling of, quote, anxiety and depression. Based on what we now know from Huberman and others, this makes complete sense. If our dopamine receptors can only allow us to get off from experience of massive high in emotion, then why wouldn't we walk around in a common malaise all the time? It only makes sense. 
Climbing a proverbial Mount Everest is a shit ton of work. We can't do it often, if at all. This causes us to feel alone, hopeless, and sad. We shouldn't because we are indeed trying to do good things, at least most of us, most of the time. But we do because we have no emotional regulation and emphasis on the journey that leads to the destination of that thing. We only want the cookie in the bottom of the jar and nothing to do with the process of finding the cookie. We're confused by this, as we should be. Isn't the goal what we aim at and should make us feel good? It is, and it should. But that same mindset does not apply scientifically. It only dulls us, numbing us so efficiently and quietly that it eventually smothers us in a relentless assault of emotional and mental suffocation. The saddest part about all of this is that it usually starts out as a good thing. People who want to achieve and accomplish goals do so because they genuinely think it will make others and themselves better. But, as we all are probably aware of by this point, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Too much of this, too much oversaturation of pleasure, leads to a massive emotional overcompensation, probably the biggest that we will see in our lives. What ultimately results from this overcompensation is that they come crashing down on you like a wave. You put in so much effort, so much work, and so much time, and yet at the end you feel like you gained nothing. How many stories have we unfortunately heard about athletes or musicians or popular culture figures going broke right after they make it? Lottery winners who blow all of their money and end up giving themselves a face tattoo with a 9mm. Mothers who go through depression after they have a child. Fathers who become addicted to prescription medications after they land a high-profile job. Probably at least one of us, unfortunately. The crashes that result from the high of our emotional lives are nothing short of ugly, and they're absolutely running a train on our mental health. Our mental states are crying out uncle. They can't take it anymore. They don't want to play. They want to get off the ride. But the ride doesn't stop. Because we don't stop. For the depth of human history, we are goal-oriented creatures. That's why our society bends toward progress and not towards chaos. We are meant to chase things. It is a universal fact of the human condition. And now, with things more accessible and open than ever before, all of our wildest dreams can mostly come true if we play our cards right. Humans are smart creatures. A lot of us are. But we don't feel that way, often because so often we make ourselves feel like shit without realizing it at all. We don't know that it's our fault, so we sulk and blame everyone and everything else. This general feeling of dopamine, not being receptive anymore, is causing us to think that feeling good is not always good. And this is far from the truth. In fact, it's so far from the truth that it's an anti-truth. Of course you're going to feel bad sometimes. That's normal. That's a part of life. But when your brain is inadvertently rewired by your own doing because you only pursue Goliath-style series of pleasure, you get the general sense that not feeling overwhelmingly great is akin to feeling depressed and sad. People then conflate that with having, quote, mental health problems. In reality, these aren't mental health problems at all. The real mental health problem is the one that is causing you to think that you have mental health problems. That is the core of the issue, and what you should work to solve. This is, as mentioned before, how addiction happens. Addiction happens because of chasing another high. Huberman, in his interview with Bill Yao, had a very interesting definition of what he explained addiction to be. Addiction, according to him, is the gradual narrowing of what brings you pleasure. I was pretty shaken up when he heard that, or when I heard that, because I was stunned how accurately he summed it up. When you gradually chip away at and narrow your intense spikes of pleasure, 
you gradually eat away at your overall mental health. We're addicted to feeling bad. We're addicted to our mental health being rotted away to nothing. To avoid this, we always have to taste pleasure, the next thing, the bigger thing, and the more potent thing. In doing this, you theoretically never have to come down. It leads to mindless positivity spreading like a virus. This, unfortunately, ultimately will lead us, will need, allow us, or get us to the point where all of our emotions are numbed using those same addictive materials. What's the point of feeling anything positive if nothing makes you feel good in the first place? The only things that will be left is our, quote, anxiety and depression caused by our, quote, mental health issues that really don't exist. This is a sad existence that we inflict upon ourselves. But, fortunately for us, there is an antidote that is simple, but not an easy, fix. Huberman hinted at it when he spoke in Impact Theory. But for a better and more potent example, we go to a man who mo most recently showed Huberman's example of one of the most visual ways possible. Two weekends ago, WBC heavyweight champion of the world Tyson Fury retained that boxing heavyweight championship after knocking out Deontay Wilder in the 11th out of 12th rounds. I'm a fight junkie. I watched the whole thing. The trilogy bout between these two men was sensational. It was immediately lauded afterwards as potentially the greatest heavyweight title fight of the past 25 years, going all the way back to when Mike Tyson was in his prime almost literally killing people on the canvas. And they were right. Tyson Fury now undoubtedly reigns the baddest man along the on the planet alongside Francis Ngannou. In fight sports, especially fights this big, you earn that right when you're the big man on campus. Fury, it seems, has everything. He's 32 years old. He's rich and just earned himself probably another $30 million with his last fight. He has a beautiful wife and five kids. He still has a long way to go in his boxing career if he wants. Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest athletes to ever live in widely recognized the greatest boxer to ever live, boxed until his mid-40s. We could and probably will be seeing a lot more of Tyson Fury. But, strangely enough, Tyson Fury almost ended up with nothing. Before Tyson Fury ended his first, entered his first matchup with Deontay Wilder, who then had a legitimate argument as being the scariest human being on the face of the earth, he went on Joe Rogan's podcast in order to help promote himself. Fury, as a British-born fighter, didn't have a lot of presence in the United States compared to the Alabama-born Wilder. A lot of people were rooting against him for a lot of reasons. A lot of people called him brash, cocky, and unworthy of facing Wilder, who had, at that time, knocked out every single one of the 40 men who dared to walk across from him in the ring. Tyson Fury doesn't look like a professional athlete. He's awkward, fat, and lanky. We were spoiled when we watched the Rocky movies and got a juiced-up Carl Weathers, Dolph Lundgren, Mr. T, and Sylvester Stallone. Deontay Wilder was in the same vein. He's a freak of a man, measuring at 6'6 and 230 pounds of chiseled American-made muscle. Fury is 6'9, 270, and built like the Michelin Man. His counter UFC counterpart, Francis Ngannou, is so scary that they literally call him the Predator. And the interim UFC heavyweight champion, Cyril Gaon, is similarly monstrous. He doesn't look like much of anything at all, much less one of the greatest living athletes in the entire world. But Tyson Fury knew his potential. He knew that he was going to come in and mess up the entire world of boxing, 
And the reason he knew because he was the and the reason that he knew was because he knew the complete other side of it. In one of the greatest segments of the podcast I've ever seen, Tyson Fury laid out what happened since he was 27 and tasted a championship victory. He won his first title belt at the age of 27, as I mentioned before, against Vladimir Klitschko, who was then his lifetime boxing hero. But after that fight, Fury said that everything changed. Nothing could make him happy. He was going through the motions. He didn't feel like anything that he did mattered. Naturally, this started to degenerate even further. Tyson Fury claimed that he had never done drugs before in his life. After that breakthrough moment in his career, he started smoking weed and doing coke. His drinking picked up. He started letting his diet go completely. In a year, Fury weighed over 400 pounds and was an addict. He laid around the house all day and did nothing. After going dormant and failing a drug test, he was stripped of his title belt by the commission. But Fury was fine with that, because Fury didn't want to live anymore. Quote, I didn't care about boxing, and I didn't care about living. I just wanted to die, and I was going to have a good time doing it. End quote. Fury then began to actively wish on a daily basis that God would cleanse the world of his existence. He wanted to die. He prayed for it. He craved it. He didn't care that he would leave behind a wife and five kids. Living was so unbearable for him that he wanted to stick a fork in himself and go away. Another former legend who pissed it all away because of poor choices and bad mental health that was reinforced by his own bad decisions. One day, Tyson Fury made his decision. While driving his Ferrari, Fury began to speed down a hill towards a bridge. According to his own account, he was going 170 miles an hour. His intention was to fly off the bridge and crash into the water burying himself in a coffin of freezing water, shards of glass, and twisted metal. Fury steeled himself for the moment, preparing himself for what was to come. But he didn't do it. Fury said to Rogan that he heard a voice, and that voice told him to stop, to not drive off the bridge, to think about his wife and kids and reconsider his actions. And he did. Tyson Fury slowed down, pulled off the side of the road, thanked whoever said it, and began to cry. After his tears washed away, he took out his phone, called his dad, and told him what happened. Fury and his dad then went to the leading mental health expert in England, who dealt with the most severe mental health cases in the country, to get him tested. When the doctor came out to told them the news, what the two men heard shocked them. She told Fury's dad that he couldn't be trusted alone. He was as depressed as you can get and would probably try to kill himself again if he were left to his own vices. It was a shock, but thankfully one they took graciously. Tyson Fury had a choice to make. He could either try to continue this new life he was entertaining, or try to reclaim his old one. He chose the latter. The first thing he tried to do was run two miles. He made it 200 yards. But he kept moving. He kept improving. He kept getting better. He kicked the drinking and the drugs. He lost the 100 plus pounds that he gained. He reinvigorated himself. And in return, he was rewarded with a stellar boxing trilogy match against the formidable, not, most formidable knockout artist since the aforementioned Mike Tyson prowled the ring. The day after the third fight, I was on my weekly FaceTime call with my parents. I was talking with them about how sensational it was, how great it was to see a sport that had sucked ass for so long have such a great moment in the spotlight again, 
one that hadn't been seen since the world somehow was convinced that Conor McGregor boxing Floyd Mayweather was a good sporting event. They didn't see it, but they also agreed. My parents, specifically my mother, are not big fight sports fans, but they can appreciate it as much as anyone. The conversation then began to evolve into a discussion about mental health. I don't remember what the trigger point was, but it was almost directly after the conversation about the fight that a lightning bolt hit me. I think I might have made a point about the majority of men being a mess because they don't have a purpose or something to strive towards or something. We're entitled and lazy, and it's a problem. My mom largely agreed with me, and then poised a solution that seems so easy and simple, but one that no one talks about. My mom had recently seen a story in her newsfeed about an obscure country in Africa. She couldn't remember the name, but she remembered one specific statistic about that country. Even though standards of living in Africa pale in comparison to those held in America, one thing is surprisingly blowing us out of the water. Their mental health. In this nation, the number of the population with a, quote, mental health condition was in the single digits. My mouth almost fell open when I heard this. Single digits percentages of mental health issues? There couldn't be. People, like, starve there. They catch malaria and die. A lot of them have, drink, have to drink water that's tainted with their own shit and die from dysentery. It can be nothing short of a dreadful existence. So why in a nation with people having actual problems did people not feel hopeless or like they had to despair? The reason wasn't named in the publication, but it didn't have to be, because my mom said it. The reason was, as mentioned, very easy and very simple. They didn't have the time. And think about it. Why on earth would it make sense to worry about a twinge of anxiety when you have food on the table? When you have to walk miles upon miles to get some clean water from a well? When you have to actually hunt and kill things to eat them? These people have no room at all to worry about the frivolity of lesser emotions. They don't have time for that level of weakness. They have more meaningful things to do. Things that are actually constructive. Things that can be made better. In America... With all of our excesses and vices, we have all the time in the world to worry about our problems. Let me make something clear. I'm not all saying that we should all sweep our pro all saying that we should sweep our problems under the rug. That's mindless positivity, not strength. But if there actually is a problem, get treatment for it. Whether you're a villager in a third world African nation or a lefty college student who attends Bernie Sanders rallies. But what I am saying is that our feelings are sometimes just that. Feelings. Being depressed is not the equivalent to having clinical depression. Being anxious is not equivalent to have the, having an anxiety disorder. Temporarily feeling like you want to stab your roommate with a serrated knife for leaving her bra on your door handle again is not the same thing as having multiple personality disorder. These are all different things. I wrote a post at the beginning of the pandemic last year about how during lockdown, our exposure to our own vulnerability was going to cause a lot of problems for our mental health. That turned out, if I dare say so, to be correct. But what I didn't anticipate inside of the pandemic was the slowing down of not just our society, but ourselves. Some people went right back out and did things, but others didn't. Look at the number of labor force participation and active community involvement now. They weren't great before, and they aren't great now. As a man, I can tell you firsthand that we don't do well when we're idle. Women are so much more naturally industrious than us, it's crazy. 
It might be because they can just make shit up that is bothering them or things that they need to do or spontaneously throwing together a trip to Utah on the calendar, but at least they're doing things. Men are not wired this way, in my estimation. That's why the opiate epidemic has ravaged a disproportionate number of males and females, I would contend. And worse off in these situations, these are men with actual responsibilities. Those who have wives and kids and mortgages and car payments. There's no excuse for men that haven't to not do things. We have our health and our personal responsibility, at least for the most part. We can put ourselves together and contribute, but we don't. And we're getting more and more, quote, mentally unhealthy because of it. See the three times greater likelihood that a man takes his own life over a woman for the most stark statistic you can get. The answer lies in what Fury and that African nation have in common. They got busy. They did things, and they did the things that mattered. They didn't waste their way doing meaningless bullshit like scrolling through Twitter and talking to women who don't want to fuck you over dating apps. They took their lives back into their own hands and used them to create and mine their own value to improve them. And I contend that this advice is worth listening to. Get busy living or get busy dying, as some obscure movie that no one has ever seen before once told us to do. There is a common saying in most, most, quote, mental health circles that says you need to, quote, take a day. Well, in this mental health circle, the one that you should be listening to, I say fuck any and everyone that has ever told you that. You don't need to take a day. You need to do the exact opposite and do something. You need to do something constructive. You need to do something that helps yourself and potentially other people if you dare. Doing nothing does exactly that. Nothing. Doing something might get you somewhere. The slogan of this blog and my podcast is, quote, owning the day and opening minds. That's there for a reason. A day not owned is a day wasted. A mind not opened is one closed. And those are two things that cannot happen if you are to live a productive life, in my estimation. Doing both is essential to fighting off the bastion of your own worst mental health instincts. For your own sake... I suggest you listen. Well, that and Tim Dillon could very well roast you if you don't. So, all right, guys, that is my thoughts on that subject. So, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to hear what other people think. You know, if you know, I, I haven't gotten, I, I, I lost track of how to check my email a while ago. I'm trying to log back into it, but you know, so that's kind of what my thoughts are on the subject. So, go out, do something, do something productive. And I'll see you guys in a couple of minutes, probably. Actually, in a couple of minutes because the podcast is going to roll into the second one. So, own the day, open your mind. Thanks for listening, guys. Appreciate it. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?